Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Connor Fraser. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. In January 2022, you joined Beyond the Headlines to learn about the past and present of Canada's relationship with China. Today, we bring you a panel discussion about the future of Canada-China relations. China is rapidly ascending to become the world's most powerful economy, and there is no denying that China has added value to the lives of many Canadians who regularly purchase goods and services developed in China. However, China is a complex nation, much larger in terms of population than Canada, and with a radically different worldview than our own. Some would even argue that China is a hostile power which threatens Western civilization. In this spirit, we sit down with an open mind to understand a basic set of questions. What does China want and why? What does Canada want and why? And are there any notable areas of overlap and divergence that could enable us to either create or destroy value in the future? We are grateful to be joined by two distinguished guests. Professor Paul Evans is based at the Institute of Asian Research and the Liu Institute for Global Issues within the University of British Columbia, where he is the HSBC Chair in Asian Research. Notably, Professor Evans is author of the 2014 book, Engaging China, Myth, Aspiration, and Strategy in Canadian Policy from Trudeau to Harper. Our second guest, Professor Bernie Froelich, is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at York University, where he is Executive Director of the Asia Business and Management Program. He first visited China in 1965 and was first secretary in the Canadian Embassy in Beijing in the 1970s. Professor Froelich is notably the author of Mao's People, 16 Portraits of Life in Revolutionary China, and Canada and China, A 50-Year Journey, which was published in May 2022 and draws upon interviews with five Canadian Prime Ministers, 35 Ministers, and 40 members of Global Affairs Canada, in addition to extensive archival research and his own personal experiences. Welcome, Professor Froelich and Professor Evans. Thank you for joining me, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. Thank you, Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Uh, Connor, thank you for having me on your program with uh, Professor Frolic. It's uh, a real pleasure to be able to, to uh, speak with you today. Professor Frolic, I wanted to congratulate you first on the recent publication of your book, Canada and China, A 50-Year Journey. To start our conversation, I wanted to ask you to share uh, some of your highlights from your first trip to China in 1965. What about this journey made an impression on you? It's been a long time. <clears throat> that was over 60 years ago, almost, I think. Well, not quite 60 years ago. Hard to remember uh, everything, but uh, the impression I had of China was startling. It was poor, uh, heavily 
uh, engaged in it was the cultural revolution was about to happen uh, and uh, very politicized uh, and uh, very nervous about foreigners. There are very few foreigners there and, and foreigners were always kept very carefully separated from the Chinese population. Chinese had memories of living with foreigners and even before that, always having engaged with foreigners at, at a somewhat of a distance. Uh, I had come to China then uh, because uh, I had been spent a year in the Soviet Union uh, doing doctoral research on uh, at Moscow State University, and I know and there the Chinese students who were coming to study from China and the Russian students were always arguing over the nature of socialism. And I would listen and I would realize that uh, Soviet socialism wasn't doing very well. And it looked like it was heading, heading to where it eventually headed. But would China offer a better kind, better solution, a different kind of Marxism? And I wasn't a Marxist, by the way, but I was fascinated by the, the potential of Marxism in the future, world's future. Uh, so China was very poor, and it struck me that not only uh, uh, was it so far behind the Soviet Union economically, it had a different kind of socialism that it was developing. It also seemed to have no interest in Canada. Uh, Canadians were a curiosity. There were hardly any there uh, besides me and a couple of other people. The only thing they knew about Canada was Norman Bethune. Uh, he had the doctor that... Uh, uh, who had gone to China in the 30s and helped the Chinese in the war against the Japanese. Uh, Chairman Mao had written a uh, 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 wonderful essay about him that he helped China. And, and yes, and he was a foreigner. And even though he was a foreigner, he helped us. So we got that benefit of, uh, of uh, being, uh, uh, that was the only connection really. And later on, of course, once we decide to recognize China, uh, then other Canadians and other, uh, and we began to uh, develop a relationship, but it was completely uh, almost uh, compared to Russia, where we had relations, it was uh, like going into a moonscape almost as far as Canada and China were concerned. I'm wondering, many Canadians, including myself, have never been to China. And so when we talk about Canada-China relations or any kind of relationship, it's really about trying to understand one another. And it's really, it's really hard to do that when your sense of the relationship is just what you read in the news every day and, and you haven't actually you know, been there, been on the ground. So what advice would you have for uh, Canadian citizens born and raised who have never been to China who want to truly understand it, but might otherwise struggle with the cultural divide? Like what are some things we should know that we don't know? Yeah, I think this is uh, one of the most difficult things that I've, I've encountered over my years uh, with China. Uh, it was different when I, you know, I spent several years in the Soviet Union living there and doing research and so forth. Uh, I could feel that even as a foreigner, as an outsider, even in the Cold War, I was able to, to sort of get become a part of, of, the, of the society and what was going, going on day by day. It, it's always almost been impossible to do that in China. Uh, a foreigner is going to be a foreigner in China, no matter what. 
not just because you look different, but because you are different. You come from a different civilization, different culture, different political system. Uh, you are not born in China and you're not Han Chinese and you don't have that gift of Chinese culture and tradition and history and, 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 and sense of uh, uh, being part of this great culture, this great nation. Uh, and so you have, to, you have to work with that. And you have to work with that, try your best to, on a day-to-day -day basis, to, to make, do the things that you can do. Uh, but always remember that you're not going to, it's going to be almost impossible to get very close, closer than you are now. And I'm talking about having been there now 60 times in the last of those years, uh, living there, working there, teaching there, doing research. Uh, and always, there's always that barrier between me and the uh, Chinese, even though I've done have done a lot working with people in the party who who run the system and uh, having Chinese friends, you uh, I'm not making this as a, a negative thing. This is just a, a, an explanation of Chinese behavior with the outside world. Professor Evans, does that resonate with you? Halfway. Uh, and we can begin a discussion of China around cultural differences, historical differences, uh, really civilizational differences in a deep kind of way. And that, that is half of the picture. But China is also a modern nation state. Uh, and it has been evolving and opening to the world in ways that I, I couldn't see in 1976, uh, but that have been unmistakable the thousands, the hundreds of thousands, the millions of Chinese students that have studied abroad and gone home, tourism back and forth, investment in and out. This is, is not a hermit kingdom. Uh, and it is a kingdom that has interacted uh, the Maoist period. And, and since then, China has interacted with the outside world in all kinds of ways. <clears throat> Chinese citizens um, value some of the same things we do but not quite under the same, the same political circumstances. So when you, we think, what do we need is the mindset for those who, who are thinking about China, whether you've been there 60 times or 25 times or two times or never at all. I think it's, it's so important to, to be aware of differences, to study culture and history in China, to get a feel for some of those big patterns that uh, Bernie discussed. But at the same time, um, to, uh, to recognize we do have some overlapping values and interests uh, and uh, how to find those, how to uh, build a, um, a relationship around and beyond differences is it's, it's partly keeping an open mind. To know China is not to love China, uh, but to know China adds a complexity. Uh, and uh, we, um, uh, the, the realization that different civilizations are going to have to be able to live with each other, interact with each other in constructive ways, even when there are deep political differences. Uh, I think that would be my one, my one hope for, for all Canadians that, uh, uh, that have to live with uh, a global China. Professor Froelich, I, I get the sense you want to jump in and add something on top of that. I want to comment on, Paul, on what Paul said. 
I essentially agree with him that uh, yes, China was was closed up to the world. Uh, the Americans had isolated it with its policies, and and it had always been apart, really apart from the outside Western world. And yes, modernization comes in and opens up China. But despite all that, it still is a culture that is apart from ours. Yes, maybe there are, there are parts of Chinese culture now that absorb modernization, whether they, what certain kinds of Western values, but not uh, not the values that we had hoped for, like liberalism, liberalization, uh, democracy, human rights. Those things are still very much uh, questionable, certainly by the leaders of China. So, yes, there's been an impact. But I guess from my point of view, having uh, spent so long there, hoping that things would open up for China, because uh, uh, being becoming a superpower in this world, uh, it should become part of the world rather than remain somewhat away from it. And if you, in the recent period, just in the last three, four years, uh, the Chinese have, uh, 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 they've um, established policies that have become even more critical of foreigners uh, in education, uh, in letting foreigners have NGOs in China, uh, and various other things that even more limit the, the 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 position of foreigners inside China, and in a sense, give the, the give the sense that it still is very much an inward-looking society, at least in in those areas when it uh, wants to deal with Western values. It, they may choose certain values of modernization, how to increase production, technology, uh, things like that, but other values are very likely for them to hold off. And you can see this already in the current 20th Party Congress uh, uh, speeches by his speech by Xi Jinping uh, and others that uh, uh, they're going to continue to focus on this. But I agree with Paul that yes, modernization or, or opening up of China did make a difference. It broke down China's isolation. It brought China into the world economic community for sure, and in the political community to a certain extent. And that's a positive thing. Thank you. So to summarize what you said, as a Canadian who's never been to China, something that's important to understand is that if you are there as a foreigner, you are really a foreigner. And no matter how much time you ever spend, you won't really be considered um, you know, one one of them uh, for whatever reason, and that's very different from what you experience living in other countries. You are listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. My name is Connor Fraser, and I'm joined by Professors Paul Evans and Bernie Froelich for a conversation about Canada's complex bilateral relationship with China. CIUT is a non-profit community radio station and this week we are kicking off the fall fundraising drive. Anything you can give helps Beyond the Headlines and all the other CIUT shows to continue delivering the programming you love. Visit ciut.fm slash donate. Thank you. I wanted to transition uh, onto a somewhat related uh, topic. I wanted to transition into putting us into the shoes of the leaders who are responsible for China's uh, foreign policy, notably President Xi Jinping. 
and really get us to try to understand what does he want? What does China want with the world? Um, China is a very difficult country to rule, to hold together, and is in a very, very difficult neighborhood. Uh, if we think about it, uh, the United States has the great advantage of having really only two land borders. Uh, China has them with 14 countries. Uh, and it also has a society <clears throat> and an economy that I think is increasingly interconnected into the outer world. But at the same time that it's in a major geopolitical confrontation with the United States, that uh, we are on the verge or in the midst of a new uh, Sino-American Cold War that is, um, uh, is producing uh, all kinds of tensions for those two countries but for the rest of us around. So if you're sitting in Beijing as a, uh, as a leader, your number one concern is how to maintain your domestic control of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, the second is how you hold China together, come up with uh, uh, development plans uh, that, um, that give a national uh, uh, unity uh, to that country, then managing your relations with countries on the immediate border with Japan, with South Korea, with India. These are uh, complex countries that are closer uh, and more important in a Chinese leader's minds than distant lands like the United Kingdom uh, or Canada. The United States is different. The United States is in its own category of uh, the other big power, the great power that China needs to occasionally cooperate with and sometimes compete with. Uh, United States is number one, uh, <clears throat> and China China maybe doesn't want to become number one, but it doesn't want the United States to remain as number one in a new order. So in, uh, in that context, Canada, what do, China, what do the Chinese leadership think of Canada? There have been some good moments in a relationship. Canada has been useful to China uh, in early days of grain trade and wheat trade helping China deal with some of its difficulties, helping China get into international institutions, having generally a very favorable relationship, a positive relationship with Canada uh, for, for almost 50 years. But on scale of importance, uh, Canada is a third tier importance, uh, equivalent to what uh, maybe a uh, France is, although France is a nuclear power and Canada isn't. Whether we're third or fourth tier is, um, uh, it is hard to say. But when they look at us, what, do, what does the leadership want from us? First, it wants uh, manageable, predictable relations. And the kind of event that the, occurred in our relationship during the so-called two Michaels or the three M's affair was um, from both sides, a slap in the face. Uh, <clears throat> we felt the Chinese betrayed us. The Chinese felt we betrayed them by doing the work of a hostile United States. Uh, and so uh, even in that third or fourth tier of significance, there are some impediments. And a view I think now that with each passing year, Canada's significance to China decreases. Um, it's not negligible, important things we do in education and trade, but <clears throat> somewhere in that, uh, uh, somewhere down the list of importance. But they do want to maintain positive state-to-state uh, -state relations. At this stage here in Canada, state-to-state -state relations are chilly, they're cold, 
as seen by both sides. Uh, but what we need to do is establish and maintain people-to-people -people relations. And there, I think uh, Beijing sees it to the advantage to have students going back and forth, travel, investment, business people, and to maintain some elements of a, of a positive relationship, even if uh, I doubt many leaders in, uh, in the Chinese capital get up in the morning worrying about what Canada is going to do next. Uh, we worry about them, <laughs> but that's a differential of size. I get the sense that there, there's a lot of asymmetry in this relationship. Um, and I want to give Professor Froelich uh, a chance to come in here and, and give us a sense of what he thinks uh, China wants with the world and more specifically with Canada and whether he agrees with what Professor Evans said. Well, I basically agree with uh, what Professor Evans said. Uh, it's a very good analysis of what China's uh, geopolitical interests are specifically. Uh, let me though think, suppose I'm Xi Jinping and, I, I'm, uh, and I'm running China. But what is it that I want to do? Well, number one, I wanted to, uh, re to take the, the, my position as leader of the party and clean house in the party to, re to restructure it, to get rid of corruption, to get rid of the lazy party people who are not doing the job since, since the term, since into about 2010. Uh, number one is to bring the party back to where it should be to run the country because you cannot run a, a country very well. Oh, that's 1.4 billion people without centralized party control. China never had a democracy and may never have a democracy. We don't know. But that's in the, the, the first thing, if I'm Xi Jinping, is to rebuild the party. And he's been doing that. Then you go on, what's the second thing? Economic development. Well, yeah, we've got a strong party, but strong party, but we have to uh, work out a, a deal with the people. What are we going to give them? Uh, well, we're going to develop the economy, and we've got to say that in 50 plus years, the economy has uh, tremendously increased, in, in part foreigners helped and so forth. Uh, so economic development was has to be the second one. And that's where uh, Canada could help because and see uh, Canada, there is something there. China can see Canada as a source of raw materials in the supply chain. Uh, trade with Canada is $100 billion a year. Most of it is 70% is for China's exports uh, as well. So that could be. The third thing is, uh, I think, that Xi Jinping wants, and you can see that in good part with this current uh, party congress, recognition of China's uh, in, uh, greatness or impending greatness or its ability to uh, recover from past humiliations. I think that's always on his mind and it's got to be on leaders' minds in China. Uh, and I think so, and not just, and then you go on to, I guess, finally, uh, what Paul was talking about too, uh, is recognition of China's core interests. The, the idea that we have we have an agenda to, uh, well, first of all, become a regional power again fully, and maybe if more have to contend with the other superpower, that that's in keeping with a, with a, uh, a new superpower that's going to be, we, we think, we Chinese think, the dominant economic power in the world. So I think Xi Jinping has a number of objectives, but number one is to rebuild the party. And of course, number two is to stay in power. But that, <laughs> and we'll see if 
and we assume he's going to stay in power with this party congress. Anyway, that's just uh, uh, Canada has a minor role to play here. As far as China is concerned today, Canada, uh, they don't really need to uh, worry too much about what we think of China unless we are reflecting American interests, because that's what they always think we are, is simply uh, some something that reflects the uh, American, the, the running dog complex. Uh, we are at this point uh, simply a satellite of the United States. That may not be true, but uh, you know we're, we've been told we are a weak, small power by China's leaders. Anyway, Paul, you have a you want to add something? Uh, in the Frolic book, uh, the Fifty Years book that he's just published, um, and in my, in my book uh, a few years earlier, both of us were struck <clears throat> by uh, a phrase that Chinese that Chinese diplomats have used to describe where Canada is in the world. Uh, and uh, when we were negotiating diplomatic recognition, uh, there was an analysis of why Canada was important to China. This is 1969. Uh, <clears throat> but I think the, the wisdom of that period is still, uh, is still alive. And uh, that was the view that Canada was important to China because it was close to the United States. Uh, the second was that Canada was important to China because Canada is somewhat independent of the United States, that in some areas it could negotiate and move in directions a Washington couldn't or wouldn't. And the third was that Canada would be useful to China in international institutions and through its what we would now call its role as a middle power. And all of those are kind of interesting because they're being tested again right now. And if there is a geostrategic Chinese interest in Canada, it's not Canada itself. It's not our market. It's not our small population and the, the, the things we uphold domestically. Rather, when they look at Canada, uh, they are in the midst of a major technological competition and confrontation with China. And the issue is whether countries like Canada those middle powers are going to support a decoupling, a pulling apart of the uh, economic uh, networks that connected China. Uh, and so whether it was on the Huawei 5G decision uh, or whether it's now around some of the ideas that um, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland is offering around uh, Canada should be lining up with other friends, other democracies, to um, uh, restrict contacts with China uh, and to bifurcate the world. In a funny way, Canada is useful to China now as a country that still believes in globalization. Trade, uh, global supply chains that run across political differences. So uh, somewhat independent of the United States or close to the United States. Um, sometimes they see us as a vassal, but in general, they see it as a possibility of us taking positions that might be somewhat different than the American. There are a lot of complexities here that it's the way that China views Canada is, you know, we, we might think that we're important to them, but from their perspective, that is very questionable at, at best. They don't wake up in the morning and think about what we want. Uh, they're focused on much bigger fish 
People like Xi Jinping have a, a very complicated set of incentives. He's he's focusing on his own personal position and his own power, like Professor Froelich said. And also, um, China is really trying to still grow as an economy and improve the lives of its own citizens. Um, I'm wondering if we can if we can change tack right now and think about and think about the Canadian uh, perspective. Canada has announced intentions to formally produce a new China strategy. And in, in anticipation of that strategy, I'm wondering, uh, Professor Evans, if we could start off by trying to understand what are the different schools of thought within Canada's policy community uh, about how to approach China within either the Department of Global Affairs, within the academic community, like what are the different camps saying about how we should approach China? Uh, Connor, it was <clears throat> fascinating that for roughly roughly 20 years, 50 years, the 50 years that Professor Froelich's book covers, um, we had the, the rudiments of a consensus on how to approach China. And that was called an engagement strategy, which meant uh, trying to build as many connections as we could uh, to uh, maximize Canadian trade and commercial benefits, to uh, try to end China's isolation and maybe improve its international behavior. Uh, and above all, there was a moral case as well, that um, we would not just be contributing towards uh, China's, helping China behave in ways that we liked internationally, but we thought there might also be some domestic transformations that would come along with uh, this openness of engagement. But Connor, your question is quite right. Um, as triggered uh, by the three M's affair, the treatment of the two Michaels, uh, the, the deep emotions uh, that that um, brought out in both uh, China and in, in Canada. In the wake of that, and in the wake of some assertive Chinese behavior around its borders, but particularly inside its own borders, uh, with Xinjiang and Hong Kong being topics, um, the consensus around engagement is broken. Um, there are some, some, including a lot of professors, uh, some of the think tank people world, and some of our government officials that feel that engagement was the right basic approach, but that it has to be modified in these new circumstances. But there is a considerable body of opinion now in Canada uh, that we see in some ways, cross-partisan, this is not just conservatives, uh, it's liberals, uh, new democratic members in parliament who want a harder line against China. And that's being more critical of China on human rights violations, uh, on uh, <clears throat> it's some of its behaviors, some of its attitudes towards Taiwan. We've got a, a, a significant portion of the Canadian public and uh, commentariat uh, and political world uh, that uh, want a harder line. Uh, and that uh, on China, they're much more interested in lining up with the United States and our allies, the like-minded, uh, to push back against China, to restrict Chinese influence and interference activities in Canada, which they see as important, but fundamentally <clears throat> to draw a line between democracies, uh, and our friends uh, and autocracies, including China, uh, 
but uh, Russia as number uh, public enemy number one at this stage because of events in Ukraine. Um, so we've we've got a division of opinion, and it um, runs right through our government agencies. Some want to extend and, and strengthen those elements of engagement we want, uh, and uh, others feel that it's time to emphasize those confrontations. The Trudeau government has been extremely skillful at not taking a position. We don't have a China strategy. We don't have a clearly enunciated China policy. Now, most countries don't. It's such a fluid and difficult situation and dangerous to chart out a policy that can lead to conflict with your major partner, the United States. <clears throat> so we don't, we don't at this stage have a China policy. And I don't think we're going to have one in the near future. The liberal government talks about four Cs. How do we approach China? We approach China from the perspective of coexistence, uh, of cooperation, uh, of competition, and of confrontation. In other words, it depends on the issue, the timing, and the context of where we are. And that position um, is, is somewhat distinctive. Uh, it's different than our American friends, but not, not contradictory to American approaches. So we have found in ambiguity in a China policy now, the liberal government has, uh, as kind of safe haven to continue with some things and uh, push back against China. Resolutions from parliament condemning it for genocide in Xinjiang is pretty, pretty clear confrontation, but not full confrontation. Uh, so I think, um, uh, and as I say, Bernie's book did a brilliant job uh, of looking at how attitudes inside government over time, who are generally supportive of, contain of, of engagement, but now have become much more mixed and um, uh, it's a confrontational, uh, it, there's big differences uh, in, in, inside. Our consensus is finished. Thank you, uh, Professor Evans. And there's a number of things I want to unpack there, and I want to pass it over to Professor Froelich. But first, just a quick reminder that CIUT 89.5 FM is kicking off its fall fundraising drive. Visit CIUT.FM slash donate and please give generously. We are a nonprofit community radio station and your contribution is needed to enable Beyond the Headlines and all the other programs on CIUT to continue delivering high quality programs. This week, we have brought you two all-star guests, Professor Paul Evans from UBC and Professor Bernie Froelich from York University, who are discussing with us the very relevant topic of Canada's relationship with China. Just to remind our listeners who, who might have tuned in, you are listening to Beyond the Headlines. We are a weekly public affairs talk show that airs every Monday at 11 a.m. on CIUT 89.5 in Toronto online through our website and across podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This week, we are discussing the future of Canada's relationship with China alongside Professor Paul Evans and Professor Bernie Froelich. Have you enjoyed the conversation so far? Do you want to add your voice? Send us a tweet at beyond underscore headlines. If you have suggestions or feedback for our show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're listening. Uh, Professor Froelich, I'll let you jump in. And just to loop you in, I, I had pivoted the conversation to 
to uh, more uh, understanding the different schools uh, of thought within Canadian policy circles about how to approach China. Um, so I'll, I'll give the word over to you. Okay, uh, Professor Evans did an excellent job on uh, explaining the differences and what, what's going on uh, with uh, up, up there in Ottawa. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, it's, uh, it may be a bit of a, a slight, a kind view of the government's current uh, policies uh, uh, of ambiguity and skillfulness. Uh, there's a fair amount of criticism that it may be not as skillful uh, as it could be uh, and in keeping with what people suggest is a general problem or failing of the current government that quite often uh, key policies or issues tend to get uh, uh, get ambiguous treatment. Uh, some Canadians would like to have a more uh, positive uh, uh, kind of policy towards China, but maybe we just have to be patient and wait uh, as I've been waiting and others for the outcome of a number of events, whether it's the United States elections coming up in November and whether Trumpism is going to return and how that will affect policy towards China and towards Canada, whether it's the party Congress taking place right now, uh, whether it's various elections in Canada, the rise of populism and, and anti-Chinese uh, perspectives in Canada, where less than 20% of the population, apparently, according to the pollsters, have a favorable view of China. So, uh, you know, this may be, uh, may be necessary for us to have ambiguity, although some, some, some Canadians are a bit impatient uh, that we somehow wound up at a certain point and have been uh, like a car that's stalled. So we'll see what happens. I, ju I just want to conclude our, our part of this segment about Canada and Canada's approach by asking you, uh, first Professor Folek and then back to Professor Evans, what do you believe um, constitute unreasonable expectations uh, in Canada's relationship with China? Like if we were to aspire to have some kind of relationship in the future right now, what do you think wouldn't be uh, you know, reasonable to expect that to look like and why? After 60 years, uh, 50 plus years, we have not really made a dent in China's human rights practices. A little bit here, a little bit there, a nick here, a nick there, but uh, it's been a really difficult task for us. And I've been involved in a lot of projects in China that deal with human rights. Uh, we just get stalled by uh, both uh, official uh, uh, reaction that they do not want to open up the political system and the population in general that has not really it has a sense of uh, how to exercise uh, human, uh, human rights and individual freedoms. So this is a problem that is we really think it may be difficult. We can keep talking and we should to China all the time in various fora with other groups of uh, uh, countries and so forth. But, but will we, we don't seem to have an impact. So that's one area. And that, of course, relates to uh, Western values, to what extent politi in, in political values, uh, values of openness and focus on the individual can, can that we can help make an impact 
or should we make an impact uh, with, uh, with those our values? Uh, we have uh, certainly our governments have tried. Uh, Prime Minister Harper made this one of the central uh, features of his policy towards China uh, to focus on our bring our human rights to China. Well, they we brought them there, uh, but they, they did not last very long. Uh, it, it didn't work out. Uh, is there a return? I don't think it's negotiable to think that we're going to return to the 90s when we had uh, some Chinese or even the 80s, you know, the golden age that the Chinese even themselves said of relations with China. That I think is not likely. Uh, I think that's another area that we have to think about. I think that uh, uh, as far as trying to limit China's aggressiveness uh, and its espionage activities in Canada, uh, I think that we will keep trying but that's not so easy either. Uh, we have to keep trying, but all countries uh, do uh, deal with uh, 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 intelligence gathering. We, we would like to at least control it more. So I would say those are the main, uh, the main ones. You know, the, the, the other side of course is trade, trade, people to people, uh, education, uh, uh, the, the Chinese community in Canada, which has a close link with China, uh, et cetera. These are all areas that we need to promote and continue to develop. Uh, let me, uh, Bernie, go a little bit, uh, a little bit more precision <clears throat> into some of the things we're not going to, uh, we shouldn't expect of relations with China. And I think you've, you've framed it as don't expect convergence uh, on human rights. Don't expect the Chinese political system is, is likely to change uh, in, the, in the foreseeable future. And I think that really does underpin, um, uh, in addition to some hard differences of opinion with China at this stage, that we're in for a dark and difficult uh, uh, decade or so. And, uh, but I'd, I'd, I'd put a sharper edge on it. And that's that, um, the values that I heard a former conservative foreign minister, uh, uh, cabinet minister um, speak about uh, four days ago here in Vancouver was that we need to continue our agenda to promote freedom, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law in China. Uh, that's, that's a pretty difficult game to play. Maybe on rule of law around the edges, but to expect and the other side of it uh, is the view that um, we simply do commercial and transactional things with China. And I'm hoping that something we, we might be able to expect is finding some middle ground on some of these issues. Uh, human rights, ah, not political rights, but other elements of human rights, there's room for practical uh, overlap uh, in some things we think with reference to um, uh, people with um, uh, 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 impairments, um, some workers' rights issues, maybe. Any case, that there is a little bit of room maybe for, for maneuvering there. But I think the one thing that I don't hope uh, will occur is that we get into containment mode. This is um, uh, what, what Bernie properly emphasized as something even with deep difficulties with the regime and on some foreign policy issues, 
keeping doors open to contact as far as possible, keeping our universities uh, doing exchange programs, doing collaborative research. We do need to put up some new barriers in certain uh, areas that are related to national security and maybe even economic competition. But in general, how we can keep as many doors open to China as possible. We're gonna to have to put some new screens on, the, on those doors. Uh, some things we're going to have to keep out. But my biggest fear, my biggest fear is the idea of bifurcation, dividing the world uh, into a Chinese sphere and a Western sphere, and that um, <clears throat> the, uh, the globalization aspirations of these last two generations will disappear. So uh, realistic hope about where to navigate some differences, find some commonalities, and a hope to avoid that containment and a full Cold War 2.0. Uh, thank you, Professor Evans, and I want to echo your your concern of of falling into silos and the importance of maintaining an open, uh, you know, an open dialogue and those those people to people connections. And on, on a related thread, I want I want to ask you both. A few days ago, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland referred to the term friendshoring, which ostensibly means increasing trade within circles of like-minded countries and this this smacks a lot of what you said um trading a, a, a western sphere and then a non-western sphere um, professor frolick your book uh, notes how a group of asian economies such as japan south korea taiwan vietnam and others collectively add up to be even larger than china and in the spirit many within canada are recommending that we use this moment to accelerate relations with our formal allies in the region and try and cut china out of higher value added uh, trade, for example. What are the limitations of this uh, proposition and in what ways does it remain uh, impractical? Uh, Professor Froelich, uh, refers to you and then to Professor Evans. Um, I'll only briefly uh, mention a, few, a couple of things because uh, Professor Evans is much more involved in this than I am right now. Uh, you know, uh, we always say size matters. Uh, and uh, therefore, oh, they've got this huge community here, this huge, uh, it's bigger in total tra trade potential than China. If we start uh, trading with them more, increasing our trade and reducing our trade with China, that will uh, help us a great deal. It'll show China uh, the limits of what they can do with us and, and uh, encourage China to have more positive policies with us. Okay, that's fine. Uh, Will that ever happen? Well, this uh, Indo-Pacific, uh, uh, we have an Indo-Pacific group that's about, to, a government group that's about to uh, make a report, we think, and it will tell us what we should be doing in Indo-Pacific and where, where China fits into this, maybe. Uh, these are all questionable kinds of ideas. Uh, they may work partly, we tried to diversify trade with America over the years. It never worked. Uh, so diversification of trade has limit. Now it's not called diversification. Now it has this new term, friendship, uh, friend shoring, where you, you want to promote economic nationalism within your own country, replacing imports with uh, import, uh, imports from another country with your own production. There's a limited limited possibility there and i think a lot of it is just letting china know that we are we're we're not going to 
uh, we're going to confront you in some way or another. But limit, just like a tariff, it has limited value in the end. Anyway, that's all I want to say. Paul has probably much more to tell you. Um, Connor, the, the speech by Ms. Freeland at the Brookings Institution that you referred to, I think is an important marker in the discussion. We don't know if it was her views. Um, she was speaking like a minister of foreign affairs uh, in that speech. We don't know if it's the view of the cabinet. We don't know if it's the view of the liberal government, but she has put out an, an image of vision of uh, where the world is and where it should be going. She feels that engagement with autocracies has failed. She feels that the multilateral system that has been put in place and that isn't based on autocracies versus democracies, uh, connecting with friends, the World Trade Organization, the United Nations, a whole global infrastructure that is out there. Uh, part of the Freeland speech was that has failed too. Uh, and that we are being pushed into an era of great power competition that is defined on the basis of political system, democracies versus autocracies. That, that vision and its implications are very significant. Um, I, I'm very concerned about them because I think first that um, the world doesn't evenly divide into autocracies and democracies. Many of our good trading partners, uh, with the exception of the United States, and even there, uh, we're not sure how democratic they actually are. If we talk about diversifying into other parts of Asia, sure, that works for some purposes, but China is central to the economy of Eastern Asia. Um, China does more trade with every country in Asia than does the United States, every country. Uh, and in 130 countries in the world. So to divest yourself somehow as if you could from China uh, is going to be, um, uh, it runs against the interests of many countries. The Japanese don't want to see uh, friends versus enemies. In some issues, yes, but as a general approach to shake down global trading systems and, um, uh, and, and global value chains, into those with friends and, and uh, against enemies is not something any country in Asia wants. Yes, push back against China sometimes, but don't get out of the business. So I think that Canadians in, Miss Freeland's speech appeals to many Canadians who are angry with Russia, don't like China for being too, uh, don't like China because it isn't sufficiently critical of China and because they feel that democracy is under threat at home as well. It's interesting that these ideas around friend sourcing, et cetera, are coming from countries, uh, the United States, Canada, a couple of uh, Anglosphere countries. They are not representative of patterns elsewhere in the world. And they're coming at a very time with American leadership where America is trying to project its values and its image outwards at a time that its image internally, the dysfunction of the political system, the erosion of democracy is strong at home. And I, I hope we can avoid the, the illusion that by getting closer to the United States uh, on these matters, by friend sourcing, that we're going to be doing good for Canada or for the world. 
Thank you. That that's an interesting rebuttal and also an interesting point you made about Christy or Freeland when she said this. Does it actually represent the view of the cabinet? We know that uh, Minister Freeland herself has a very close personal connection with Ukraine and what's going on right now. Um, so whether that statement about friend friend showing is representative of the of the Canadian approach going forward is still um, you know to be determined. Um, and just uh, looking at the time here, I'm wondering if uh, an, an interesting uh, way to conclude this conversation, Professor Froelich, you, you wrote this wonderful book, which draws on so many, uh, so many sources, notably conversations with five Canadian prime ministers, and you've had a chance to uh, sit down with them and understand how they perceive China. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything remarkable, uh, anything that stands out about what they said to you, perhaps one conversation that stands out above the rest for either its insightfulness or lack thereof that you, you would be willing to share with us. Well, that's, that's difficult. Uh, I think that uh, each prime minister made a significant contribution to uh, our relations with China. But perhaps, obviously, the greatest contribution was done by Pierre Trudeau. And I had the chance to see, to interview, to talk with him three times, once in, once in Montreal with Paul to Evans together. We, we shared an interview once, at, uh, once at, uh, in Boston at Harvard University, where we had a long talk, and uh, once in Moscow at the Bolshoi Ballet, where we met. And we talked each time about China and Canada, China. And his view was very clear. You have to get China into the world community. You can't isolate it. You can't contain it. You have to live with it. And if you're going to live with it, that doesn't mean you have to change it and make its, make its human rights palatable to us. Maybe that will happen over time. And we don't have to wait for the United States. That was his, in, you know, his poor foreign policy at that time. We can go ahead and do this. He took a risk. Uh, we did it, and uh, I think that was the most dramatic uh, action of all the prime ministers. Kretchen also did some interesting things. He went to China a dozen times. Uh, can you imagine a prime minister going both as a prime minister and afterwards a dozen times to China? Uh, that was impressive, and he promoted trade, but he discounted human rights. He said the key link's got to be trade and we have to recover from Tiananmen. So he also had an impact. The others did too, you know, Paul Martin, Mulroney, who actually as a conservative built upon the liberals, even said in parliament, I'm going to follow Trudeau's policies. And he, his policies were very clear. Yes, uh, trade was number one. Yes, he talked human rights, but he was interested in opening up relations between the countries. Uh, there were, Paul Martin, Kim Campbell, they also had things to say and they played important roles, but that would be my answer. Uh, I think Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau has to be the number one person, uh, in number one prime minister looking at China. Remember, he went there twice. No other, no other uh, uh, minister had gone to China. No other uh, uh, politician of note had been to China uh, uh, in in that period of time uh, when it was you know uh, uh, a place nobody went to and he did so yes that would be i think my way of looking at it gentlemen thank you so much 
for joining me today. I'm there was so much more I, I wanted to discuss with you, but I think uh, you know it's such a broad topic that we we got through a lot in the time that we had, and I'm I'm grateful that you you were able to join me. I learned a lot. I think our listeners learned a lot, and I just like to end by saying thank you so much for being here and spending your time. Pleasure being with you. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. This weekend next, CIUT is hosting its fall fundraising drive, and we are asking our listeners to give generously. Any donation you give will be greatly appreciated and allow us to continue delivering high-quality programming. Visit ciut.fm donate to make your contribution. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined today by Professor Paul Evans and Professor Bernie Froelich. Many thanks to them for coming on to the show to discuss the future of Canada's relationship with China. Today's show was produced by myself, Connor Fraser. Our music was licensed through Creative Commons and included Not Dead by Fine Times, Bees by Caribou, Glitch in a Ride by The Whole Other, and Intro and Jingle Jazz by Quantum Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you are listening. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of the show and you want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in over the coming weeks as we bring you content about improving care for Canada's elders, Great Britain's political and financial situation, Canada's Arctic defense policy, and much more.